Welcome to Embedded Edge with Knitting, a podcast that brings to life the stories behind today's embedded systems, technologies, and products. It's the show where you'll hear from both engineers and executives on some of the most topical news and most pressing challenges in the world of embedded system design. Here's your host, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded.com, Nitin Dahad. Hello. Welcome to this special edition of Embedded Edge with Nitin. I caught up with Graham Curran, CEO of Sondrel, a provider of complex system-on-chip design, offering a turnkey ASIC service from designing the system to supplying the silicon. Graham founded the company some 20 years ago, so I asked him about the background to why he started the company, some of the early challenges and customers, and what he sees has been the key trends and changes in embedded systems over the last 20 years. The company has also worked on many very large chips. So we asked about some of the challenges, as well as what he sees as the next key challenges in the semiconductor industry. Hello, I'm here with uh, Graham Curran, uh, CEO of Sondrel. Hi, Graham. Hello, Nitin. Good to talk to you again. Nice to see someone after so long. <laughs> exactly. Um, so um, I thought we'd uh, sort of cover a little bit about um, what you're doing with uh, Sondrel. But before we do that, um, let's start with a little bit of background. Um, Sondrel's been going uh, since 2002. You founded it then. Um, tell us a little bit about the background and why you started. Uh, obviously, things have changed in the last 20 years. But tell us about that and the why you started and the early challenges. Yeah, it's that um, 20 years next summer. So it's been uh, quite an interesting journey along that case. Uh, before Sondrel, I was working for Avanti, an EDA company, and we were largely specialised in physical design, extraction and so on. And at the time, I was feeling that it was becoming increasingly difficult for small companies to do their own chip design, um, particularly around the physical design areas, because it was becoming very expensive and very specialised. And what I was seeing, particularly amongst startups, is that they would decide they were going to do a chip, take a year to build a team, take a year to work out what was doing and, and how to get the flow and everything working, do the chip, and then spend another couple of years with the team sitting around waiting for some sales to come through. So spending a huge amount of money. And it just seemed to me that um, if you compared those types of um, work with the economies of scale that we were getting at the bigger semiconductor companies. There was an opportunity for somebody to come in and say, well, we'll do your chip for you. We've already got the methodologies and the processes and we know what we're doing. Um, unfortunately, that so somewhat coincided with the dot-com crash and the drain of um, venture capital out of semiconductors. Mm. So it never quite went in the way um, I expected. But nevertheless, we took you know, from day one an international approach um, of working flexibly across multiple markets in multiple areas. And therefore, over time, um, we've managed to grow substantially. We've had a year-on-year -year growth averaging sort of 20%, a um, couple of downturns, but mostly up. I think we've had two years when we downturned, and but every other time up. So it's gone pretty well, yeah. And... Um do you uh, sort of remember your first design, your customer? Uh, I mean, uh, is it something you remember and can tell, or is it so far in the distant past now? Yeah, so it's well, it's far enough away that I think the uh, confidentiality restrictions have gone. So the first customer was Infineon in Germany, and um, 
we spent, so there were three of us originally, and we spent, two, at least two of us spent time flying backwards and forwards to Munich and spent six months working during the week in Munich on site. And the thing I remember most about that was it was a very cold winter and it was like minus 16 degrees centigrade every night. So I, <laughs> it, it exposed me to very cold weather for the first time. But it was a lot of fun, actually. You know, uh, I'd been a manager at um, at, at Avanti before that for quite a long time, and I hadn't really touched the tools. So getting back to actually touching the tools and finding out what was real mm. was a great experience. And I really enjoyed that. And um, what are the changes you've seen over the last uh, 20 years? Can you tell us maybe the, the top sort of changes and trends uh, uh, from then to today? Well, I could probably go back even further than that. But, you know, since timing-driven design came in and synthesis came in, I don't think there have been any major changes, anything really drastic. There have been some smaller things that come in, of course, you know, changes in every now and increment. But the problems I see today and the challenges I see today are not that dissimilar from the ones that we saw 25, almost 30 years ago now. You know, I'm old enough to have been involved in early cadence tools, um, you know, when cadence first came onto the market and so on. And, you know, there's a number of us in my generation that have been through that. Challenges are very similar. And particularly when Avanti or Arxis, as it started out, brought in timing-driven designs and synopsis brought in synthesis. Um, There hasn't been any major revolution since then that I've seen. Okay, I mean that's interesting. So, I mean, maybe that sort of leads us on to the next thing. You you tr- sort of evolved from design services to uh, developing uh, ASICs and IP platforms. Can you just tell us uh, a little bit more about Sondrel's uh, business model and how you operate? Yeah, so right from day one, I had um, like many people starting their own company, a fantastic hockey stick business plan that said mm. that we were going to be a billion dollars within two years or something. Um, life turns out to be somewhat harder than that. And but there have always been an intention to do silicon supply as well as design. For a number of different reasons, uh, that decision has been taken some time to come to fruition. But we decided a few years ago now that that was the right time. Um, we needed to build a good capability to actually deliver chips, because these are big, complicated chips that we work on. It's not a small um, small device that can be handled easily. They're expensive. Um, the testing is very difficult and complicated. Um, you need to have a lot of capability. So we needed to have the scale and the infrastructure to be able to handle that. So we launched our ASIC business a few years ago, and it's shown a really, really good uptake so far. Um, and you know it's got a lot of the advantages um, that design services doesn't have. It's much more longer term. It allows you to have long term engagements, which is really the big attraction for it. And yes, I think I think you've sort of as, as a result you've re- launched a few IP platforms as a result of that, haven't you? Yeah. So one of the key things here is to how you get your design work that you do on one design to be to allow you to be more efficient on the next, whilst of course maintaining customer confidentiality and mm. differentiation between the different products. And companies have always tried this in all sorts of different ways, whether it's um, having IP blocks or soft IP or hard IP, whether it's platforms or subsystems or whatever it is. So we've come up with this approach that we call architecting the future, which allows us to address four or five different markets 
And we've really focused our engineering efforts on how we assemble those complex SOCs efficiently. So we don't start with any, um, you know, we don't, for example, design our own hard IP blocks and then tell our customers that's what you've got to use. What we do instead is work out how to really efficiently integrate other people's IP into the systems and make sure that they're well characterized and well known and that they can be done at low risk and quickly. And I mean, you've got the sort of manpower behind that to put put all that together. It still requires manpower. I mean, we've had um, uh, the EDA tools people talk about you know, putting AI and intelligence into into sort of design that, but you still need that manpower, I guess. Yeah, it takes um, you know it takes a lot of background effort to design a chip today. You have to work out what tools you're going to use and what order they're going to use them. Uh, you have you have to train people. Um, these all take a lot of time. But then also you need to do all this R and D to develop the the platforms or whatever else you're going to do. So like like all companies in our situation, we have a number of people who have to be in the background, if you like, not working on customer projects. And this is a really, really important part of our business. You know, this is what drives our future revenue and our future growth, which is our ability to develop, if you like, our own IP, um, something that will convince the customers and enable their projects to be successful. So we spend a lot of our revenue, um, many millions of dollars every year on internal R&D. Okay. And uh, I mean, just sort of ex- extend that and then we'll talk about the, um, um, the, 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 the arm as well later. But um, uh, what do the customers, when the customers come to you, you talked about, you know, the, the time uh, to market issue. And I think, you know, because you've got that expertise, you can do that much quicker. But why are they typically coming to you and what type, what's the type of customer that comes to you also? I mean, is it a particular uh, market or application or is it everything? It can be anything, actually. Um, you know, we always look at this and think we should be focused on a particular market or something. But our expertise is in delivering complex designs in new technologies. So we don't typically engage in designs which are 40 nanometer or so on. Nearly all the designs that we work on are 12, 7, 6, 5 nanometer. We even have one on three nanometers. So mm. that's our sweet spot. And that tends to indicate which markets you go through. So the markets we address yeah. tend to be networks, um, imaging, AI, those types of markets or application areas, however you want to call it. Mm. Um, in terms of companies, then it can be anything from major semiconductor companies all the way through to startups. Okay. And many people well, are doing that. And I mean, I think I did say earlier, but uh, large chips seem to be your speciality. You seem to be able to do that, but obviously that serves that market. Yeah, it's not really, although we do talk about large chips. Of course, we one of the reasons we talk about large chips is because they're more interesting for people. Uh, you don't tend to do a press release. I've just completed a small chip, but nobody yeah. wants to read it. So, but the reality is, um, we, yes, we do some very large chips. You know, we've taped out a number of chips, which have been well over 600 square millimetres, which is the, the reticle limit. Um, in seven nanometer, you know, we have one in, in five nanometers that's that size. So these are many billions of transistors. But we also do some more normal size, 60, 70 square millimetres. And even in, in some cases, you know, two, three, four, five square millimetres. But the common factor here is that they all have something that is unusual about them. I mean, there are really only about four mm. companies in the world that can design in these technologies. Okay. So that gives us a strong differentiation. And of course, it gets our engineers 
interested. They love doing the stuff that's in the new technologies. And yeah, I'm an engineer by background, as I've already said. So it's much more interesting to do complicated, hierarchical, heterogeneous design in five nanometer than it is a small mixed signal design, same sort that you were doing 10 or 20 years ago. Right. Now, your focus is on ARM. Um, so I, I think because you've got that expertise, um, how does, um, I mean, is is the uh, our customers coming uh, and then licensing their own sort of um, taking their own ARM license, or are you sort of selling that with with that uh, with your um, licenses with ARM? How does as a customer work with you? So that, that's an interesting question because we had this debate for many many years as to whether or not when we were only offering design services, whether it was better to buy just the design services from us and the bits from other people or whether it was better to supply the whole thing. And what our customers told us repeatedly, what the market told us repeatedly, was they wanted a one-stop shop. Okay. So today that's what we offer. They come to us and we do everything from, in some cases we write their specification for them, we do their architectural design, um, we procure all the IP that's needed, whoever it's from, um, and then we procure the silicon and we test it and we ship it and we ship qualified parts. So we do the whole thing. So they come to us as a one-stop shop. Okay. So they're not having to do that licensing or anything like that. They, they come to you and they get everything. So they, yeah. So they don't do anything. And, you know, again, this is, comes back to what I said right at the very beginning, which is um, generating that economy of scale. If you go mm. to an IP vendor and you buy something once, you're not going to get the same relationship as you do if you do it over and over again. And it's not just about price. I think um, people who don't do a lot of chips or maybe have done one, but it was five or six years ago, underestimate how complicated it is to procure, qualify, check and integrate mm. third party IP. Um, it's never it's never 100% perfect. It always needs something. It always needs checking. It always needs integrating and so on. So there's a lot of work in that. And mm. I think it's far, far better that it's all done by one. And that's what our customers like. Um, of course, yes. So, so I just add one more point to that as well. Yes. It's also a reason why we have never gone into designing our own IP. Because when people come to us, they say, you know, I, I want to do an architecture. What's the best solution for me? And we need to be independent of that. Right. Yes. So we're not going to tell them you've got to use this DDR5 because we've designed it or you've got to use this processor because we own the IP for it. We're not going to do that. We're going to find the best solution for them. Okay. And um, let's move to sort of some of the current uh, trends. Um, integration is is the big thing right now, you know, sort of um, providing more of a, a reference solution. Uh, that's what the chip companies are doing. Uh, how does that put you – What position does that put you in? I mean, is that still good for you? Um, uh, does that mean you can go up, up the value chain or, or what do you see? Yes, again, it's, it's very much about solving somebody's problem. And I, I, in a way, I see us a bit as, you know, we understand silicon, what can be done from it. Our customers typically understand the market and what they need. Um, by putting those two together, what we try to do is to say to customers, this is what you can do. And they say, this is what I'd like to do. And sometimes, of course, it, it directs them in a certain way. And sometimes it can be quite enlightening for them. I mean, none of us knew we needed an iPhone until mm. they came on the market, until mm. um, Apple or whoever showed us what smartphones were like. And then we all decided. So somebody has to show the customers what's possible. 
and what the trade-offs are. And most, many of the customers that come to us have not done a design for a while. Mm. And, you know, we've all seen the exponential curves of cost. They get somewhat, often somewhat taken by surprise. You know, people don't necessarily expect a 10 or a $20 million IP cost to be built into the projects. So we have to work and, and show them what's possible, but also show them how they can retarget a product or change the product or change the architecture to give them the real return on the investment that they need. And there's so many points to that, whether it's time to market, whether it's power, whether it's unit cost or whatever it is. So we need to look at that. So understanding their business is where we really try to start. Right. Yes. Um, so what do you see as a, the next big challenge or challenges for the chip industry as far as you're concerned? For, you know, uh, where, where do you see yourself uh, like having to address solutions in the next you know, two, three, five years? I mean, whatever you can say. It's um, it, it's very much an evolution of what we've been doing over the over the last 20 years. But it, it's it's all about size to me. Mm. It's all about size of data, size of design teams. Um, again, it comes back to those curves that we've seen, which are exponential, but it's it's easy to look at uh, an exponential curve and think, oh, yeah, it's an exponential curve. When you actually look at it and you look at, say, the IBS data and they're saying, which you can argue with or not, you know, it might cost you $500, $700 million to design a chair. Look at it another way. That's 5,000 man years. Mm. And you've still got to get it out in 18 months. That's a lot of people. Now, of course, there's reusability and all sorts of other things that reduces that. But the steps between are not linear. They're, even the percentage change generation to generation is going up. So when you go from two people to three people, it's manageable. When you go to from 50 people to 100 people, suddenly that's not manageable for many companies. Mm. So, And, you know, we're looking at big data farms, massive amounts of CPU, massive amounts of disk, huge amounts of data to manage and control and qualify and big teams. So it's... The market over the last 20 years has switched very much from being a, I need a design expert to being, I need to be able to control everything and manage the project and bring it all together. It's much, much more of a, you know, like a, a large engineering project than it mm. was 20 years ago. So Sondrell would continue to be your your large engineering team that you don't need to hire. <laughs> exactly. You know, and we need to keep expanding and that, you know, that raises challenges in the market today. Mm. Um, and yeah, there's particular challenges around the market today, as we know. I mean, customers are, are worrying and the press are worrying about um, the ability to to source the silicon and to get the chips. But it's equally true in the in the ASIC and the design services world. Lead times are going out. The time from people making decisions to the time when you can even start is going out. Mm. There's a big queue of designs starting to build. We'll see how that pans out in the coming months as well. And of course, fewer and fewer people who are able to do the chips. And there's plenty of people who can do your 40 nanometer chip. Mm. As I say, there's only perhaps three, maybe four companies in the world who can do a five nanometer chip. That sort of leads on to a question, which I um, guess um, is skills. I mean, do you, I think you, you deploy teams around the world, and I think you're you're also sort of hiring in uh, places like India. Um, but uh, I, is skills a big, big issue uh, when you're hiring? Skills is a big issue. I mean, we often, the, the hiring managers often say, I want somebody who's already done a five nanometer large SOC. Well, of course, there's nobody, so you can't hire that. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of effort and we've, we've recently been hiring more people to actually just lead our teaching efforts. Mm -hmm. Worked in the past with universities on, on courses. We did a big 
um, a lot of work with Nottingham University a few years ago. Training people, teaching them what to do is a really, really important part of our business today because we need to be able to access these teams and we need to be able to scale them up. And the problem with being at the leading edge is you can't get them from anywhere else. You've got to do it yourself. And I guess you're you're hiring them from all over, so you're distributed around the world. Yeah, so our centres are set up to get the right balance between cost, accessibility of staff, ability to hire staff and proximity to our customers. You know, we have to align not only with their cost requirements, but also with the cultural and language and time zone requirements, because we have to work very closely with them. So we have people in the States, we have people in the UK, um, Africa, India and China. So we cover the whole world from our different bases. Africa as well. Is, uh, is that in um, where part? That's in Morocco. Morocco. We have a so, okay. Yeah, which has been there for about five years. It's going very well. Yeah. Wow. Okay, good. Well, um, Graham, uh, thank you very much. I think uh, it's uh, it's been uh, good chatting to you again. Yeah, it's nice to, as I said at the beginning, nice to see you again. And it will be really nice when we all manage to get out and meet in person a little bit more as is starting to happen in some parts of the world. So that brings us to the end of this episode. That was Embedded Edge with Nitin, and I'm Nitin Dahad. Thanks for listening and see you next time.